revenue growth engine really is a combination of a target customer with a particular problem, with a particular product you have in mind or service offering that solves that problem with a particular distribution channel that's aligned. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone, very excited to have Victor Chang today, who is an executive coach that advises startups, uh, Inc. 500 caliber companies on exploiting strategic growth opportunities in any economy. He's been featured as a business expert by Fox Business, MSNBC, Wall Street Journal, Time, Harvard Business Publishing, you name it. It's all there. Forbes is in there as well. He is also the author of The Recession Proof Business, Lessons from the Greatest Recession Success Stories of All Time. I'm going to have to pick that up. But I got him in here because I read this book called Extreme Revenue Growth, Startup Secrets to Growing Your Sales from 1 Million to 25 Million in Any Industry, and Book Commercial Marketing, Why Books Replace Brochures in the Credibility Age. Victor, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on, on board. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, likewise. So can you give us a little background on kind of who you are and what got you up to this point? So a little bit of your story. Yeah. Long story short, uh, graduated from Stanford University many years ago, worked in the management consulting field at McKinsey uh, for a few years. So kind of understood big companies, Fortune 500 companies, how they grow, how they work. Um, and just sort of the tech world, um, sort of the start of dot-com bubble in the late 90s. Um, and now today, well, sort of work in and out of that field. Um, uh, less as an operator these days, more as an advisor and independent board member. Um, I love companies that are growing very quickly, that tends to skew tech, in some cases other kinds of services businesses, love recurring revenue businesses quite a lot, and just like the growing pains that come with trying to scale a company uh, in what I call the puberty years, you know, generally around 1 to 10 million in sales, where uh, lots of interesting problems that I find very fascinating uh, tend to happen and have developed an expertise in that area. Great. And when you say growing quickly, like uh, what percentage is, is that? Like what, what's good to you? Uh, like 100% per year, year over year. Got it. Okay. Hard to sustain for more than a couple of years, but that's kind of where people who find me tend to be either in that phase 100% per year, year over year, or they were and have since stopped and, and want to pick it back up. So that's kind of the, the entry point for people who find me. Okay. And who are some examples of, of your clients? Yeah, I have a lot of I would say companies that are probably not well-known in the, in the exterior world. Uh, most of my companies that I work with are privately held. They usually start with me non-venture-backed. Uh, sometimes they get venture-backed and generally low-profile, so I don't usually mention them by name. But I would say probably over the last couple of years, maybe five or six companies on the Inc. 500, uh, 5,000 list. And mostly service businesses and in some cases software as a service as well. Got it. And how do these people, how do they find you in the first place? I, I don't know. <laughs> I ask myself that question all the time. They, the book you read uh, is one. Uh, a lot of referrals. Um, for a number of years, uh, back a while ago, I used to give a lot of speeches, and some people would find me there. Um, and these days, I, I write a lot. Um, I work uh, both as an as a executive coach practitioner, uh, as well as uh, in the management consulting field as an instructor, if you would, to other people who are sort of doing the kinds of work that I do. Um, so I'm quite well known in that field as well. And so sort of word of mouth at this point, and people just sort of come in randomly over email while wanting to do business or, or to get some advice. And so I try to help people out as best I can. 
Love it. And actually, this is okay. So I, I took these notes. Um, I'm looking at my Evernote over here. Um, April, April 22, 2018. So I have some bullet points I'm going to call out. But one of the bullet points says, consider consulting from Victor Chang. So uh, how does it work if someone wants to work with you? Yeah, uh, it sort of depends on the year. So many years I don't work with any clients or new clients at all. Um, uh, this year I actually am. It sort of depends on how much my main, my other business is growing and how much time it takes. But generally people reach out via email and kind of see if there's a good fit. There's a lot of companies I don't work with for a variety of reasons. You know, industry structure problems. There are problems that I can't solve and I know I can't solve them. And so I'm just trying to look for companies where they have something core that's growing, that has a high potential but they run into some kind of obstacle that I'm quite familiar with. That's kind of like my ideal. And sometimes that, um, that obstacle is uh, internally driven. Like usually it's the CEO, founder CEO, who's reached a level of growth they don't know how to get past because they've never gotten run a business of this size before. And so that's kind of a good sweet spot for me. You know, if they're in a stagnant market that's shrinking, like that's not much I can do about that. So it's really an exploration process to see if there's a good fit. Got it. And what, what kind of revenue, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Is there like a certain revenue range where you see that uh, more CEOs kind of hit a wall than not? Yeah, it's usually the one to 10 million. Um, you know, at a million, you can run a business largely by yourself with a little bit of help, right, from part-time employees or maybe a full-time employee or helper or two. You know, as you get to sort of 10 million, 25, 30, that mentality doesn't work. So you have a managerial challenge of getting things done through other people rather than sort of doing it yourself or being sort of the focal point of every decision, every piece of work. So there is an organizational challenge that sort of happens in that time frame. There's also issues around scaling. So when you're very, very, very small, you can sort of do things with hustle and just sort of intuitively. Uh, as you get bigger, you need processes that are scalable and repeatable and documented. So there's a lot of structure that helps really uh, help the company scale. And so I see that a lot, particularly on the sales side of hire one salesperson, great, they're great. But if you want to hire 50 salespeople, they kind of have to be following a set program, a set playbook, doing things in a very consistent way that's measurable, repeatable, where you can onboard new people uh, and have very consistent performance. And so those issues really emerge sort of in that 1 to 10 million range. Um, and it's very unfamiliar. So if you've not done that and you've sort of you know, done things a lot by intuition, uh, at some point you start hitting resistance on the ability for that to scale. And that usually emerges as a, as a point of slowing growth. Uh, that becomes a concern for a lot of the founders I work with. Got it. And then you come in and you help coach them up uh, in general, or sometimes maybe they even get replaced? No, no, I don't do the replacement part. Uh, usually people kind of bring me on board so they don't get replaced. <laughs> I think they have. So I only work with founders generally, certainly only with CEOs. And it's usually where they are recognizing that they aren't the professional CEO that the company needs. They don't want to bring in an outside CEO uh, for a variety of reasons. But there's a skill gap there. And so I serve that. Um, that need of filling that gap in a way that allows the founder to remain as CEO, uh, but also for the business to get what it needs. And so that's, that's sort of been, sort of ends up being the sweet spot that's worked out well for me and my clients. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, so your, your book, I mean, literally I have a screenshot here, but there's so many, so many bullet points, there's so many notes and you can, people can just literally read it and, and jump around. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to distill this uh, and you, you can figure how, however you want to take this question, but how do people grow their sales from 1 million to 25 million in any industry? Loaded question, but you've got a book literally about it. So you decide how you want to answer. Yeah, sure. It's first of all, uh, the, the big insight people get after they read the book is that it's a cross-functional process, right? So most people, the impression they get is how do you grow a sales from one to 25 million? Oh, that must be a book about sales, 
right? And, and in fact, there's maybe out of, I don't know, 15 chapters in the book, one chapter is about managing a sales force. The other 14 are about how do you manage a business cross-functionally uh, to enable sales growth, right? So for example, a very simple concept is the pendulum swings. First, you try to drive growth in terms of sales, then you swing back to operationally to figure out how do you handle the growth, right? So one of the questions I ask a lot of my prospects, a lot of my clients is, you know, if your sales were to double or triple or quadruple literally overnight, so tomorrow you have 400% more customers, could you handle it? Could you build them? Can you onboard them? Uh, if your number of support tickets went up by 400%, could you deal, handle that? Could you bring on, you know, uh, um, you know customer success reps uh, four times the next day? Like, and in most cases, the answer is no. Right? So it's very common in my work. You spend sort of six months to a year trying to get sales going. Then you have a good problem with sales is growing so fast. You can't keep up and customers are unhappy. And you swing back operationally, fix all the problems operationally that there are. So there's, a, there's sort of a, a recognition, I think, my thesis is there's a, uh, an appreciation I'm trying to articulate that is an operational as well as a market problem. And you really do have to address both. Got it. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, it's uh, different seasons in, in businesses, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned, um, so you said you work with some service-based businesses and, and uh, kind of software companies. So my intuition kind of being on, on both sides is that a lot of software uh, people tend to kind of um, say, oh, it's a service business. Why even, it's not a scalable, right? So why are you interested in service businesses? I, I used to serve a wide range of verticals. You know, I've worked in, or have familiarity with like maybe 60 industries. Uh, so McKinsey alone, you know, dozens of industries. So for me personally, I find the cross-industry work. It's interesting because I, I have a high curiosity. What I found with manufacturing businesses was like I, I could sit down with them for a day, map out all the things I need to do in the next, next 100 million in sales, but it would take five years to do because they had to go build a factory. And so we had these, uh, this situation where clients loved my work, they found it really insightful, but they needed a year or two between meetings <laughs> to go execute because you literally have to build buildings you know, and those steals to create a new product, for example. So I like service businesses of all types because the value really is in the intellectual property and the execution of that intellectual property, whether that's in code or in service delivery. And it's easier to make changes and to iterate more quickly um, and to um, go through that process, that cycle time much more quickly. So I would like that a lot. Um, and I find that suits Mel with sort of both my ideas and sort of own personal temperament of wanting to iterate um, really, really quickly and, and try to drive uh, new innovation, um, and that's possible in only certain industries. Other industries, you can't. It's, it's just much slower. There you go, guys. Service businesses are not trash. This is coming from me. That <laughs> we're, we're, uh, I have a service business and also a software business, but uh, there you go, guys. Not trash. There you have it. So I, I have some bullet points here uh, in terms of um, uh, go down the list, going down the list here. So you talk about creating a revenue accountability meeting for once a month, and there's some things here such as you know the the growth engine, things like that. So I guess can you talk about that revenue accountability meeting and what that looks like? Why people should do it? Yeah. You know, accountability is about making sure that what you are delegating people to do, they are actually doing it, right? And, you know, when you're a one-person firm, three people, it's much easier to do. When you're 20, 30, 40, 50, you have to start holding people accountable through metrics rather than purely through observation, right? And it's useful to have a set cadence. Um, so I, I think the meeting you're referring to is, you know, a monthly cadence. And I believe in having, you know, meetings weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. Um, and in the monthly cadence, what we're trying to figure out is for the things that take more than a day or two to implement, you know, like, did your team do what they were supposed to do? Right? So if it's on the sales side, 
Uh, at the month level, it is hitting all your high-level sales targets in terms of number of deals, size of deals, uh, any kind of conversion rates in the pipeline that you're tracking, which you should be tracking, as well as the same in the marketing pipeline, because that's a precursor to sales. And making sure your key operating metrics are where they are supposed to be. And if they are not, that the people who are responsible for those areas explain why they were not and what they plan to do to rectify the situation so that in the following month they are back in track. Um, and so when that meeting happens and people know it's happening, then they come prepared, ideally, to either present good numbers or plan to how to fix the numbers until they get better. And so that, that cadence and that is a very, very useful process, not just in revenue, but in all aspects of the business, uh, but, but certainly in the revenue side. Great. And in, in, in here, part of the revenue accountability meeting it talks about the growth engine. So what is a growth engine? Yeah, a growth engine really is a, a way to grow the business. So you can grow a business in many different ways. So uh, an obvious example is you create a new product. So that's one way to grow a business. Uh, you can take an existing product that you have and sell it to a new kind of customer or a new customer segment. That's another vehicle for driving growth. Another option is to take a product that you already have that you are already selling to a particular customer, but selling it through a different sales channel, such as through um, you know, resellers, VAR, system integrators, affiliates, you know, some kind of third-party assisted type of sale. And so that's a way of, uh, we call that a distribution channel. So a, a revenue growth engine really is a combination of a target customer with a particular problem, with a particular product you have in mind or service offering that solves that problem with a particular distribution channel that's aligned. And part of the role of the CEO um, beyond the entrepreneur is to figure out, okay, what are my growth revenue growth engines and what is it today? When does this current engine top out and what is my next one going to be? So a good example is Apple. You know, if you look at their revenue curves by product, you would see like, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago was the iPod was sort of like the big innovation. You know, then came the iPhone, uh, which had its own growth curve. Then came the iPad. Now they're trying to layer in the iWatch. And each of those is a growth engine. So the role of the CEO is to figure out what your growth engines are today and in the future. Um, and as a good manager, you want to delegate, uh, you know, the hitting of your goals for this month, this quarter, this year to your executive team, particularly if you're past 10 million in sales. Uh, and then the role of the CEO at that stage is to figure out what's your growth, where's your growth going to come from in the second and third year out and putting in places the pieces, the assets, the talents and the resources you need to hit your second and third year goals uh, while your executive team meets the goals for the current year. I love that. And you said the CEO is, so you mentioned there, uh, there's three bullet points here. So uh, CEO is responsible for managing growth engines and there's two other things. Yeah. Uh, I forget what I wrote. Now. I can I call them so out. Don't books, worry. So I'll call them out. Yeah, yeah. Call them out. I've written 10 books. I lose track of what I said when to who. So oh, if you wouldn't mind, I appreciate that. And yeah, so I'll call them out and I'll, and I'll kind of uh, get your feedback on what yeah, I've seen great, from other great. startup CEOs. So, uh, so CEOs responsible for managing growth engines, accountability, and recruiting. So could you explain those two first and then I'll give you the flip side? Yeah, sure. Um, so how are we going to grow? That's the growth engine. Uh, who's going to do the work, right? That's the recruiting piece. Uh, and then like, did the people you hire to do the work, did they like actually get it done? Yeah, that's the accountability piece. And so great. Um, like those three things, you just do that really, really well. It can go a long way in driving growth. I love that. And so um, what I've seen in a lot of startup literature from, you know, really, um, you know, kind of out, out there, outspoken people is CEO is responsible for recruiting. Number two is division. And then number three is keeping cash in the bank. So how do you feel about that? I, I think it's compatible. You know, vision really is like, what's your plan for the future? Right. So that kind of maps to. You know, what are your growth engines? I kind of put that in the same category. Yeah, cash in the bank is really interesting. You, you, you find that 
more from venture-backed businesses is sort of my take because from and most companies, not most, but many of the companies I've worked with, when, I, when I, they come to me, they're profitable and they have been for quite some time. And so that's almost a, a given. So I, I would certainly agree with that, that it's important to have cash in the bank. But for the business I tend to deal with, they already have cash in the bank. So it's usually not a, a concern uh, and their bias is to keep it that way uh, because they're bootstrap companies and uh, and if there's no cash in the bank, they don't eat. Literally, they don't eat. You know, they don't eat dinner because uh, the founder doesn't need money. So that's usually not something I have to remind them to do. So I, I would certainly agree with that's important as well. But uh, but for my audience, I tend to work with it. They already know that. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, a couple more questions from my side. So I have a bullet point here that says, consider firing 10 to 20% of staff. Yeah. So funny. This is something I learned at McKinsey. You know, um, you go to McKinsey, it's a consulting firm, well, well known in the Fortune 500. And every year they fire the 10% of the worst performers, right? And so over, you know, most will typically stay two or three years. So if you're there for three years, a third of the people that you know are gone, <laughs> essentially. Crazy. Uh, that third of the people that you started with are no longer there. And, you know, when I first described that to people, because that's my first job out of college. I had no idea, you know, what the world was like. And when I explained that to people, relatives that were much older, like, wow, that's so harsh, right? It seems so draconian. Yet in, in it, it's felt perfectly fine to me, and I kind of got used to it. And, and here's why, because if you don't sort of call from the bottom on a routine basis, you end up getting, you end up having the average talent level in the company uh, start drifting downwards, right? And you don't want that. Um, so if you, you know, if you're the A player founder and you hire B players, because, yeah, they're good enough, right, as, as your management team, then B players kind of like to be the smartest person in the room on their teams, so they'll hire like a B minus player or a C plus player, you know, and the C plus players don't want to get shown up. So when they hire somebody, they hire like a D plus player, um, D as a dog. And so the, the average talent just keeps getting worse. So one way, it's not the only way uh, to make sure the talent level and talent density stays high is, you know, uh, periodically just think through your, you know, your bottom 10%. Should they really be there? And what you'll see, and this happened in 2008, 2009, um, and ironically, a fortune finder company is much more nimble in 2008, 2009, around the Great Recession, is once the economy turned south, most startups kind of froze because the founders are younger and haven't gone through economic cycles. And a lot of the fortune finder companies who had access, who've been around the block, within day, weeks of the big stock market crash in 2008, almost every fortune finder company announced the layoff around 7 to like 15% of work staff. And my interpretation of that was those were the people that really shouldn't have been there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but things were going so well, oh, why bother, you know, you know, lop off the bottom 10% because we're still quite profitable and growing. So they sort of um, disguised performance management as a layoff for that first round anyway. And so really why wait for a crisis, right? Trim um, periodically, I think is, is a useful uh, tactic. That's such a good way to put it. I hadn't thought of it that way. Like if you think about like, oh, if my company, if we're in a recession right now, like who are the people that probably wouldn't be here? And that's a different way to just say, oh, let's just cut 10 to 20 percent because it's like you actually need to cut them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really what it is is, you know, what are they producing versus what do they cost? And the bottom 10 percent, it usually is their kind of like break even ish. Right. You know, their, their cost is OK. Their performance, eh, you know, like slightly positive. But the problem is it becomes such a drag on the entire performance and culture of the company. And it, people notice, oh, like mediocre performers get tolerated and you're OK. So great. Then like why strive? Right. Why strive for better performance when you can kind of get by and it's obvious you can get by by being sort of mediocre. 
when it's very clear that is not acceptable, like average is not okay, that sends a message, right? And it does two things. Poor performers tend to go away because they know they won't last, so they don't even bother. And high performers really like it because their peers are also high performers, right? So great sales reps want to work with great engineers. You know, as they say, I, I make the promises, you guys keep my, keep my promises, right? And so I, as a salesperson, really like it when I have a phenomenal product team that can back up the promises I'm making to the marketplace and we're in alignment. Like I feel really good, high integrity about that. I can sell high ticket and I don't worry about delivery, right? The superstar sales people don't want to work with bad engineering teams because they look bad. I promise, and then you guys let me down, right? And then I look foolish in front of the customer and my reputation and my credibility in my entire career is really at risk. And all these relationships I've cultivated over years in the field have now been burned. Like, I look stupid. I don't like that. So A players like to work with A players. And, and C players end up working with other C players. So you got to pick which one you want to be. So I like this in, in, in theory, and, I, and it just makes total sense. And, but I look at, um, there's, a, there's a startup CEO that I know, um, and recently they had to go through a round of layoffs. I think they laid off like 40 to 50% of staff. And now we live in a, a, an age of glass door where you know, the negative reviews just come pouring in. So have you thought about how, to, you know, how people can you know, deal with this in, I guess, like an amicable manner? I mean, hey, look, you're getting fired. Yes. So have you thought about that? Oh, absolutely. It's so funny because Glassdoor... You know, like when I when I was first involved with layoffs, you know, in 2000, 1999, 2000, the company I was at, we did nine consecutive rounds of layoffs in nine consecutive quarters. Wow. Right. Yeah. So it was like all your friends were gone, you know. And then in the ninth round, I just volunteered like I'm, this is so depressing. Just yeah. take me out. Right. I'll take the package. And it's interesting because the, the right thing to do has never changed. It has never changed. The only difference now is with Glassdoor is there's greater transparency amongst the people who are unhappy, right? So the right thing to do, whether there's a Glassdoor or not, is really to be respectful with people. And respect happens at two levels and two different time frames. So one is earlier in the process, you know, if you are very clear that you have performance expectations, right, then you tell them before they even take the job, you know, hey, Eric, this is a high performance job. We have very high expectations. On day one, you will know what your goal is and you will be expected to hit it. And, and if you can't, or for whatever reason is not a good fit for you, totally understand that, totally respect that, but it's not gonna be a good fit for us going forward. Right? So when, it's, when the deal is understood upfront, people tend not to get mad as much. Like they're disappointed, but they're not angry because anger comes from being treated unfairly, right? So if you're a track athlete and you know the, the standard is, Need to run the 100 meter dash in 11 seconds. If you can't, I'm so sorry, but we can't keep you on the team. It doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, then they know that, right? Then they know the standard is the, the enemy, right? Not, not the company or the managers or the coach. So during the layoff process itself, it's just really useful to be candid with people, right? If you're having problems, it's useful to be honest about that. Hey, we are, you know, this is a major global economic event. Um, nobody saw this company you know, coming. Uh, it's a once in a generation problem. And unfortunately, we cannot survive, um, you know, unless we lay people off. And frankly, it, it helps people to get move on to other jobs that, you know, in other parts of the country that may be growing. But we just can't make that work. So I think being really honest and very candid with people where you're at uh, throughout the process really helps sort of you know, dampen the blow. Um, if you are, 
you know, saying one thing early on and sort of in denial. Things are great even when they're not. Oh, right? yeah. Things are phenomenal and then they're not. And then you lay off half the employees. Like, Whoa, what, what the hell happened? That's exactly what happened to that company. <laughs> yeah, so they get pissed, right? Because you're either lying now or you were lying then. Either way, there was some kind of disconnect and incongruency. And that's when people get upset is there's an incongruency. So if you tell employees, hey, you're, Eric, you're doing a great job and then tomorrow I fire you. You're like, dude, what, what happened? doesn't make sense. Then you go in a glass door. But if I tell you, hey, Eric, this is the standard, and you've been only at 80% of standard the last three months, and you got two more months to make it over 100%, and if you can't, then unfortunately we can't continue. You know, then you kind of know, right? it's not a surprise that five months in a row below target, and you know, we're parting ways. And I, and I wish you well, genuinely, right? Not mean about it. That's not as, you know, it doesn't bother people as much. They're disappointed again, disappointment you can't avoid. But feeling angered or feeling wrong, that's when people are feeling lied to or misled or confused or some kind of incongruency is what people get, uh, get kind of upset about. So w- what I'm hearing is I'm hearing, A, be truthful. And then the second thing is, hey, it, this is a high performance sports team, like, you know, no hard feelings. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the key is to have that be upfront. So if in practice you're really a mediocre sports team and then after you lay them off, then you say that you're a high performance sports team. Like that looks weird, right? So if you can set expectations early, uh, be very clear on what the roles need to do, you know, what do they need to do to perform, and you have that accountability meeting, right? Whether it's on the revenue side or an operational side, and every week, every month, they know how they're doing, you know, and it's fairly objective, you know, then it's not a bit much of a surprise, right? So you know, with the Olympics coming up, you know, hey, you got to perform at a certain level to make the Olympic team, right? You know, no hard feelings, but this is the standard is the standard, and if we don't have a high standards, then some other country will beat us. So sorry, but this is, you know, it's a tough business. And so I think people are, you know, professionals understand that. They can be mature about it. They can be professional. But the key is to give them the information, to be respectful of them throughout the whole process. And then I think there's greater trust that way. Because if you're honest with them, even when there's bad news early, you know, then they're going to trust you when you say, hey, this decision really is inevitable. Somebody has to go. Uh, and, and unfortunately, these are parts of the business that add at least value for our customers. And so with great regret, you know, these are parts we've decided to shut down. Right. Yeah, okay. not to like it, but they can understand it. Yep, I love that. All right. So a couple more questions working towards wrapping sure. up here. Um, so I have a bullet point here that says always ask the 10 times test. What does that mean? Yeah, so the 10 times test is what if sales were to, d- to grow by 10 times overnight, right? Uh, whether it's five times 10, some big number overnight. What in your business stops working? So if it's you know 10 times more customers tomorrow, can you onboard them? 10 times more users on the system, can your system scale and handle it, right? 10 times more, you need 10 times more desks for people to work at. You need 10 times more telephones to handle phone calls. You need 10 times more laptops for your 10 times more employees to go work. Like what in your business doesn't work at 10 times the volume? And when I, you know, every time it's, it's a thought exercise and the thought exercise really is to expose your constraints in your operations so that you can work on uh, removing them now. And I, every time I've asked that question to someone who's actually in business with operations, as opposed to someone you know, with a business on paper, their eyes kind of just glaze over because they know pretty much everything breaks you know, at, at 10x the volume overnight. But you're, you're, the things that break first are the ones where you want to work on and trying to remove the constraint. So when I talk about scaling sales, uh, both on the, on the you know, demand generation and Salesforce side, the other part of that is making sure your operations are designed to scale. So if you hire 10 times more technical support reps, for example, do you have a training program, 
right? Do you have an onboarding process? Uh, do you have an uh, ongoing performance management process for your technical support apps? Uh, is your training is individualized, meaning is it you know the manager teaching each person one at a time, or has it been codified and put in uh, an in, in intranet with videos? So you can literally handle a thousand new support reps because they're all watching the same video to get up to speed. Right? Those are the kinds of things that help facilitate scaling growth operationally and other things that you need to do in conjunction with on that with the demand side. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. So when it comes to you working or coaching with CEOs, uh, what is it like to work with you? Like what kind of exercise are you doing in general? Cause now I'm sure at this point people have listened to this, like, man, this guy sounds smart. Maybe we should work together. So what does it look like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's work in two levels. One is, you know, as a, a you know, fee for service provider, which is what I've done for many years. I am more recently just working with companies that I have either a financial investment in or on an, an independent board member, that kind of thing. And the work is largely the same. The difference is if I have money at stake, I'm meaner <laughs> to you as my CEO uh, if I'm on the board, right? So I, 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 whereas if you're paying me fees, I'll say the same thing, just I'll be a little nicer about it. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the conversation, really it's, you know, what is the goal? What's getting in the way? Like that's the, that's the agenda for every phone call for every week for in many cases, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. What's the goal? What's getting in the way? Let's talk about how to get, you know, get rid of the obstacle that's in the way. So that's my job is to give the CEO the blueprint of, okay, you have a personnel issue. Great. God, okay. Here's what you do with that kind of problem. Uh, it sounds like you actually have a culture issue. Okay. Here are the ways how you think about a culture problem. Here's the part that's missing in your culture. Here's how you, you, know, you address that. Uh, you have a tech team that's not scaling well operationally. Okay. Here's how you address that. Uh, you have a sales force misconfiguration problem. Ah, okay. So you got the good salespeople, but they're the wrong kind for your kind of sale that you're trying to do now. You need to reconfigure the sales force. Here's how you do it. You have a lead gen problem, and here's the, uh, the issue. You have a market to message match problem. What you're promising to the marketplace is not the promise they want to hear. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you address that? So really, they just come to me with their biggest headache of the week or the month, uh, whatever the cadence of the call is, and I just you know tell them how to fix it. They go do it, and they come back the next month, uh, report back, sometimes make adjustments. Other times, we want the next constraint or obstacle in the way of the growth. So that's kind of how it works. Okay. And are you comfortable talking about if it's a service fee, what range it starts with and kind of goes up to? Yeah, yeah, sure. Broadly speaking, probably a couple thousand dollars a month, you know, two or three thousand sort of the entry point. Um, and it can be six figures in a year if you put, you know, particularly if you include equity pieces in there, which is a little more common these days. So that's kind of the range. You can give you a rough idea. Got it. Okay. All right. So what is, this is switching gears now. What is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? So for me, it would be like a Peloton bike. It could be an app as well. So anything like that? Uh, let's see. Yeah. I'll say category of, of devices, I guess. I'm really big on the quantified self, which is this movement of, you know, and this is so me, by the way, uh, tracking stuff related to your health, right? So uh, I have a watch that counts step. I got a heart rate monitor on me 24-7. And so I like things that can track various parts of, uh, of my physical health, you know, in real time every day. So I've got a scale that's Wi-Fi. I have a, you know, a seven-year chart of my weight. Um, so I like things like that. And so I think that whole class of product that helps track your health, uh, as I find really fascinating. Because uh, I do that in the business side, right? Business health, financial health. And so finally, I can do it on the physical health, you know, so I'm excited about that. I'm the same way. Um, what, what is, I guess, of all those tools, what's the one that sticks out to you? Is it like an Apple watch? Like, what is it? Yeah, actually, the one I wear most is I have a Garmin watch. Uh, I hike a lot in my backpack. So the one I have on, I forget the model number, but it's, uh, it tracks steps, mileage, uh, and heart rate. And so it's useful. I find it interesting to just watch my heart rate through the day, you know, and sometimes it's much higher than I was expecting. 
um, usually stress related and, and not just exertions. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I guess that was a little bit more intense than I realized. And so that's been a useful feedback loop for me. Great. And what is one must read book you'd recommend to the audience that's not yours? I'll give you a classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that's by Stephen Covey. I read it the second year it was out. It's been out for like 20, 30 years. I read it as a teenager. And I gave it to all my friends that year. They all thought I was criticizing them for being ineffective. <laughs> but like the sound principles there, you know, a couple of them are before you try to seek to understand before you try to basically understand other people before you try to convince them of something, right? Profound wisdom beyond years and years of, of life experience. Uh, beginning with the end in mind, right? So what is your vision for your company that you want to end up with? What is your operating plan that you want to end up with for the year? How do you work backwards from there? So a lot of great wisdom that yeah, is pretty timeless. Um, so that book uh, can never go wrong on that one. Awesome. All right, Victor, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? So I, I write, um, I'm hoping to write a blog on this topic around growth uh, in the SaaS field because I have a lot of clients in the SaaS world. So uh, sasceo.com is where I'm building up my online presence, you know, in, in the SaaS world. So for people who are interested, yeah. So just go there, um, like give away a couple of copies to, of my Extreme Revenue Growth book. So for people who actually run businesses in that field, I have to send a free copy. Uh, and then as I write articles and essays around growth, um, people who sign up there will get a copy of that as well. Awesome. Victor, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.